a message on the prodigal father. Oh, and a pretty big announcement, too, coming your way here in just a minute on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Tuesday, November 29th of 2011, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. Thank you guys so much for downloading this message and joining us today. I want to just start off by saying, yeah, we were supposed to do a Romans lesson today, uh, and I am prepared to do a Romans lesson today. Uh, However, I have a huge announcement uh, to bring to you guys first, uh, and and we'll go from there, and I'll explain why we're not doing a Romans lesson today. And that's this. The big announcement is this. Uh, A lot of you guys have been emailing me and getting in touch with me asking if we ever plan on putting an app together. Um, And yeah, I got in touch with a company that designs apps uh, a couple months ago, actually, back in, I think, maybe it was August or or July. uh, I got in touch with a couple companies, and I was quoted like $90,000 for making an app. And obviously... Uh, you know, we're not even in the same ballpark uh, <laughs> when we're talking about ninety thousand dollars. I don't have that kind of money. Um, you know, we, we don't. Uh, we're not a big enough ministry to bring in that kind of money uh, or anything even close to that. So obviously, for the time being, back then I thought, you know, there's no way we're gonna be uh, be able to ever afford an app. Well, I got in touch with another company recently, and uh, they're looking at uh, at doing it for me, uh, basically at a very minimal minimal cost. And uh, so I've been on the phone with them this morning uh, for, uh, I don't know, more than half an hour, maybe an hour or so, uh, talking about the logistics of this, and um, we've been approved. So it's looking like we are going to have an app for the iPod, iPhone, and the iPad. Uh, coming hopefully in the next month. Uh, so this morning I've been working to upload images. Uh, I've got a lot of behind-the-scenes work to do, basically, to get the app developed. Um, but that's what I am doing today. So instead of doing a Romans lesson, which, as I've told you guys before, takes somewhere from you know four to six hours uh, to do, uh, I'm going to spend the next four or so hours working to get this app put together for you guys. And hopefully that's something that will bless you. It's something uh, that'll help you, you know, so that you don't have to download and sync your iPod or your your MP3 player. And of course, we're still going to have that available if that's what you prefer to use. If if you sync, uh, you know, if you, if you download the messages to your um, to your computer and then sync your MP3 player, you know, with your computer, you're still going to be able to do that. This is going to be for people who have an iPad, iPhone, or uh, or iPod, and uh, you'll be able to stream the messages live. I'm not sure exactly how many messages we'll be able to put on there, but uh, yeah, this is something that is hopefully going to make it easier for you guys to listen. And for those of you who have uh, Android uh, smartphones. They are coming up with an Android app. They're in the process of developing that right now. So as soon as that becomes available, 
uh, we'll get that available for you guys as well. But hopefully this is something that blesses you, makes it easier for you to listen to our lessons. And uh, yeah, pass it on to your friends. Let them know that you know there's this, uh, this Bible teaching um, ministry that is going to be having an app. Uh, pass it on to your friends. We would appreciate that. So anyway, without any further ado, I'm going to get to work on this behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm going to give you guys a message that I gave a few months ago for Back to Church Sunday, which was in the middle of September uh, at our church. It was a nation, uh, a nationwide campaign. Everybody was kind of preaching on the same thing, um, and that is the prodigal son. But it's really the prodigal father, as you're about to find out. Anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. wanted to welcome you guys, those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be covering verses 11 till uh, 24. Um, we'll go through those as we go through the, the message here. Uh, but I want to start out by, by welcoming those of you who are here for the first time, or maybe you haven't been here for a long time. Uh, we do want to welcome you guys, and thank you for joining us today. But uh, especially on a, on a Seattle fall morning, I guess this is Seattle fall. For those of you who don't know, this is my first fall here. I just moved here back in January, so uh, I guess this is fall weather here, which is, this is still summer? <laughs> I'll take it, man. I'm from Vegas, where it's still, you know, they've got a, a high of like, 95 yesterday. Yeah, I'll take this any day. Well, let me start out by asking you guys, how do you respond when you, you feel like you miss somebody so much and, the, and then you get to be reunited with that person? Have you, ever, have you ever felt that, where you've missed somebody for a long, long time and you get reunited with them? Do you remember how that feels? You know, I remember about six years ago, I went on a, a mission trip to Eastern Europe and uh, I went without my wife and kids. It was one of the, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, I was out there for what seemed like an eternity. It was really just a month. But I missed them uh, so terribly badly. I think the only way I actually kept my sanity through that time was what I did is I, I brought a notebook. And I would journal every day anywhere from three to, to five pages uh, to my to my wife and to my kids, telling them about what we had done that day, and just talking about how much I I missed them. The first two weeks that I was out there, I wasn't even able to make a phone call home because I was in this little Moldovan uh, village that didn't even have phones. They didn't even have phone service. So after two weeks, I finally got to call her, and man, that was that was like tasting honey when all you've been eating for two weeks is dirt. It was like the most amazing experience because I missed her so, so badly. Well, today I want to talk to you guys about how God feels when a connection with his children is either reestablished or established for the first time. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have plenty of Bibles. Uh, We've got some out in the foyer. We've got some under the chairs in front of you. And uh, so feel free to even take one. If you don't have a Bible, it's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have one in your hands. Um, But what what we're looking at today is what's called the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. It's actually one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Most people have heard of it, but... Uh, as, as I started looking at this passage, I, I was kind of shocked. The word prodigal isn't in there. 
And I thought, well, why do they call it the prodigal son? It must be because he's rebellious. Do you guys know what prodigal means? Does anybody use that word in your common vernacular? Uh, Yeah, I've never used it conversationally, I don't think. And so I was thinking, well, you know, maybe it means rebellious. Maybe it means kind of wild or, you know, outside of the cultural norm or something like that. So uh, actually, that's, that's not what it means. So it turns out I, I don't know everything after all. Um, no, I'm kidding. I, I, I don't pretend to know anything. I'm really kidding. No, the definition for prodigal is this. Wasteful, wastefully extravagant or recklessly extravagant. Uh, so this story is referred to as the parable or the story of the prodigal son, meaning that it's a story of a son who was wasteful. He lived beyond his means, and I think that as, as a nation, maybe that's something that we can kind of identify with a little bit. But just so that we're aware of the context of this passage, because you never want to just take a bunch of verses and say, okay, this is, this is what this must mean. You want to look at what comes before it and what comes after it and all that kind of stuff. So what we're, what we're looking at here is Jesus is in the middle of explaining to people exactly how valuable people are to God, all people. And he just finished telling his followers about the incredible joy that all of the angels in heaven experience when one person turns to God. So Jesus is explaining how much God values people through stories. And I think he uses these stories, stories like this one, because we relate to stories. When we read Jesus telling parables, we see ourselves in there. So that's what Jesus is doing here. So we start out the first couple verses, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus speaking. And he, that is Jesus, said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he, that is the father, so he divided his wealth between them. Let's just stop there for a minute to reflect on all of this. First of all, it's kind of strange that this story is referred to as the prodigal, son, uh, the prodigal son, but the son isn't actually the main character of this story. Is that strange? Look at how Jesus opens it up. He says, a man had two sons. And for those of you who have uh, taken freshman English in, in high school, you, you know who the subject of this sentence is? The subject is the man, the father. The object is the two sons. So the man is the subject, the two sons are the object of this whole story. So really, this isn't about a reckless, wasteful, extravagant son. This is the story of a father who is recklessly extravagant with his love for his children. Now, according to Jewish custom, the younger of two sons would receive one-third of the father's wealth or, or value as their inheritance, and the older son would receive two-thirds. That was prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy. So the son comes to the father, and he's saying, give me my one-third, because I want to enjoy it right now. Father, give, give me what I'm, going to, what I'm due to receive someday. I, I want to have it now. Now, that's not the strange part of this story. What is the strange part? The stra- yeah, the strange part is that, well, it, it was the son who initiates this conversation. Think about that. The son is the one initiating this conversation. I mean, sometimes a guy in this culture would retire early, and what he'd do is he'd divide his wealth so that his son or sons could take care of him. 
but that was something that the father would initiate. Usually, however, I mean, when do you think the inheritance was given? Yeah, after the father died. That was the norm. But in this scenario, in this case, neither is the case. Instead, the son is going to the father and saying, give me what is going to be mine someday. The younger son has initiated this whole thing, asking for his inheritance well in advance of the father's death. There's no indication that the father is dying or that he's going to be dying anytime soon. But maybe even stranger than that, is the fact that the father agrees to it. The father agrees to go along with his son's story or his his plan. And that's because he's extravagant in his love for his children. He's extravagant with his love for his children. This story is going to tell us, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but this story is going to tell us about how great God's love is for us. And it's greater than any of us could ever Imagine. It's more extravagant than any of us could ever imagine. Now, we need to understand just one last thing before we continue, and that is that in the the Middle Eastern mindset, no son, no no kid in his right mind is going to do this. No son is going to approach his father and say, Dad, give me my inheritance now. Because by doing that, he's actually telling his dad, he's implying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Ken Bailey is an author who, uh, he's lived in the Middle East uh, for a lot of years, and he wrote a book, and he said in his book, quote, for over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. He asks, quote, Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means that he wants his father to die. So with that in mind, we see that this is not only no, no question about it, the, the greatest insult a son could, could offer his father. But it's even more strange that the father says, okay, I'll, I'll go along with, with your plan here. Let's, let's go ahead and do this. I'll sell my stuff. I'll give you your portion of my inheritance. Let's continue. The next verse, Luke chapter 15, verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son, the younger son gathered everything under or everything together, and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, in our culture today, maybe the father would would just say, well, you know, if if he's going to go along with it, maybe he'd just cut his son a check and his his son would be gone. Like, all right, pack your bags, you're out of here this afternoon. But in this case, Jesus says it was after a few days, or after not many days. And so the son was ready to leave after a certain number of days. Not a whole lot of days, but maybe a week, maybe a couple weeks. Uh, Because in the first century culture, in the first century Middle East, 
uh, a person's net worth, their value, was really in things like their land or the tools that they have for agriculture or their, their animals, things like that. That's what their, their net worth was really tied up in. And so it would have taken a fair amount of time for the father to sell off some of his land, some of his animals, some of his agriculture tools, etc., etc. So all these things had to be liquidated. And the people in the community, in the town, would have been wondering, why is he selling this stuff? And they would have undoubtedly figured out exactly what was going on. Oh, he sold off a third of his stuff. We know what this means. This means that he's dividing the inheritance that he's going to be giving his children when he dies. Did his son ask for his inheritance? That's what the townspeople would be asking. So it's a good thing that the son goes on a journey to a distant country. He, he, he goes far away because the people in his own community, the people in his own country, would have wanted to stone him. They would have wanted to kill him. Now, we don't exactly know what this younger son does with his inheritance once he gets to this distant country. Maybe, maybe he gambles it away. Maybe he stays in five-star or four-star hotels. Hotels that, you know, you can afford for a certain amount of time if you've got a lot of money, but if you're not bringing something in, you're going to run out of money. Maybe he drank his money away. We don't know exactly what he did. Whatever the case may be, he's spending more than he's bringing in, and the result is, as Jesus tells us, his inheritance is squandered. It's wasted. It's gone. He exhausts his financial resources. The son was wastefully or recklessly extravagant in his lifestyle while he had the means to do that, and now he's left with nothing. Let's continue. Luke chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. Now when he, the the son, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, to feed pigs. Now we need to understand that by this point, the younger son who is in this distant country has worn out his welcome in that country. The people in this other country were more than happy to hang out with him and to, to serve him, you know, wait on him all the time, as long as he had money as long as he was able to pay for what he was taking he was indulging himself he was able to afford to indulge himself but these weren't people who were actually hanging around with him and who were serving him because they liked him they weren't they were just taking advantage of the fact that he had some money and they needed some money so they were only hanging around him because of his money now if there's a time when it's the worst of all times to be poor, especially in first century uh, culture, it's when you're in the middle of a famine. Rich people can say, okay, well, I can pay more than anybody else for food. But somebody who's poor, somebody who doesn't have a nickel to their name, what are they supposed to do? So the situation couldn't be worse because uh, in, in that culture, what they would do is they, there would actually be leftover food left in the fields. Uh, it, you'd be able to find it. If you really needed it, if you needed to eat, it would be available somewhere. But now there's a famine, so there's nothing to spare. Nobody is handing out any leftovers. Now, we should also understand that in the Middle East, when when you had a guest, you don't just tell them, hey, it's time for you to go. 
Instead, what you do is you assign them to the worst possible job you possibly can. And the understanding would be, okay, he's asking me to do this because if I want to stay, I've got to do this, but I don't want to do this, so I'm not going to stay. So that's the implication. So somebody comes up to him and says, well, if you want to stay, uh, I'll, I'll hire you on to be a pig feeder. You'll be the one responsible for feeding the pigs. Now, we need to understand that this is not a job that any self-respecting Jewish boy would want to take. First of all, pigs are unclean. So, so that's kind of breaking the, the Mosaic law. Second of all, pigs don't take a, a break from eating. They don't take a day off from eating. So, uh, so the younger son isn't going to have a chance to observe the Sabbath either. So he's going to have to totally abandon any religious culture that he brought with him and give it all up for the sake of feeding pigs. So the younger son, he knows what's going on, I would imagine, but he doesn't leave. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't go along with what the implication that the guy is trying to give him is. Not because he doesn't understand the implications that he was just assigned to, to take the lowest of the low jobs, but because he doesn't have anywhere left to go. That's his mindset. Well, okay, I'm supposed to leave now, but where am I going to go? I don't have money to go someplace else. I, I, don't, I can't go back to my father. He, he's, he's, he's acting and living in a way that demonstrates how desperate he's feeling at this point. And it's about to get more desperate. Listen to what Jesus says happens next. Luke chapter 15, verse 16. And he, the son, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Now this word pods, that's referring to what you would feed pigs. It's actually uh, derived from carob trees, uh, but it's not something that has a whole lot of nutrients. It's definitely not something that would, uh, that would taste good. Uh, it's, it's almost devoid of nutrition. And apparently, the person who offered the younger son a job as a pig feeder hasn't paid the younger son for his work. So he's doing all this work feeding pigs, and Jesus says no one was giving anything to him. So he's doing this work, and he's getting nothing for it. As a result, he's starving. In fact, he's so hungry that Jesus tells us that he would have gladly filled his stomach with these husks, this pig food that was being fed to the pigs. In other words, the person who hired him valued the pigs more than he valued the younger son. But the younger son, I don't know, he he catches himself in the middle of drooling over a bunch of pig slop or something, he catches himself drooling and he, he starts to have an on, honest conversation with himself. He, he, he starts to face reality. And sometimes it's only when a person hits rock bottom that they're finally able to be honest about their situation and their desperation. And the son realizes that he's in a hole that he dug for himself and he's not able to dig himself out of this hole. It's only getting deeper. And so this calls for some creative thinking on his part. So we read next, Luke chapter 15, verses 17 to 19. But when he came to his senses, when the younger son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up 
and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he knows that he can't just go home and pretend like nothing happened. Have you ever been in a, in a conflict with somebody? Maybe you've offended somebody and you're like, oh man, maybe I'll, just, maybe I'll just act like nothing happened at all. I'll just pretend like you know that, that time when, when we had this conflict didn't really happen. So I'll just walk up to him, hey man, how you doing? Let's, let's hang out, like always. And as you all know, it doesn't work that way. When you've offended somebody, when you, when you know that you've offended somebody, you can't just pretend like nothing has happened. So he's finally come to the point where he says, Man, I have messed up. And I have messed up so badly. And he's sure that his father would never, never take him back as his son. After all, a father in his later years is supposed to be taken care of by his sons. His sons aren't supposed to be mooching off of him in his old age when he's unable to work. But that's what the younger son is thinking. I can't just go and and mooch off my dad anymore. He remembers his father's generosity, however, toward his servants. And he thinks that his best chance of survival, since he's not getting anything, his best chance of survival through this starvation would be to own up to his mistakes, to own up to the fact that he has really offended his father and admit to his father that he sinned against him so greatly that he no longer deserves the privilege of being called or considered his father's son and request that his dad would take him back, not as a son. He's not going to ask to be reinstated as a son. He's going to say, Dad, I, just hire me as a servant. That, that's all. I'm, I'm not going to mooch off of you. This is, this is not my intent. I, I'm here just to make an honest living, and I don't expect anything from you. And that would have been a great plan, except for some minor details, maybe a major detail. He's forgotten, or he hasn't taken into consideration the fury of the people who live in the town, the fury of the fellow servants who knew exactly what was happening, And let's remember that he not only insulted his father, but he also angered all these people who would have known and maybe even loved his father. In fact, he had disgraced his whole community so badly that he knew that that the, the, the implication of his desire for his father to give him this money would have resulted in people wanting to kill him. He he knows that. If the people knew about what he did, if the people who knew about what he did wanted him dead before. How much more are they going to want him dead when he comes back with absolutely nothing? He's wasted it all, and it's going to be for all the world to see. Everybody he's known since he was a small boy is going to see that he has taken advantage of his father, that he got on a dead-end road to nowhere, and he's going to have to face that. He's going to have to face that. How much more would they have been even angrier, even more angry, when they realized that He wasn't supporting the local economy even. He gave his money away to Gentiles, people in a distant country. And you have to remember that that in their mindset, in in this uh, first century uh, culture's mindset, you know, the the Jews kind of excluded themselves and, and, uh, you know, segregated themselves from the Gentiles. To them, Gentiles were barbarians. And so the, the fact that this younger son had squandered his money among Gentiles 
is going to make them even more angry. He's lost his money, he's lost his dignity, he's lost his self-respect, and he's run out of options. He's going to have to swallow his pride, face the music, and dance. So scene one, the younger son says, Dad, give me, give me my share of the money. He leaves. He gets his money and he leaves. Scene two, the younger son goes to this distant country. He loses his money, gets hired as a pig feeder, and he's getting nothing. He's getting treated worse than pigs. And here in this third scene, we're going to see just how amazingly powerful the love of the father is. But first, we have to understand a few things here about the father. First of all, these aren't real people that Jesus is telling a story about. This is what we would call allegory. It's, It's a parable, meaning it represents something else. Now, the Father, we need to understand, first of all, the Father represents God. You've probably figured that much out. The father knew that his uh, younger son was too mature to handle his money irresponsibly. That's the second thing we need to know. He knew that his son was too immature. He knows that if his son was able to swallow his pride and come home, it won't be as this successful entrepreneur. It won't be as this guy who's created a dynasty for himself. He knows that his son is going to come back as a beggar, a beggar, a man who tried to find his own way in the world without his father, and he's found that his own road was a dead-end road. It led nowhere. The third thing we need to know, the father knows that the people in the town are angry. He knows that his servants are angry about what his son has done. No doubt, the father has heard people talking. He knows that his son has offended him. And the people are upset about it. And the only thing that this son deserves now, as far as they're concerned, is death. He also knows that as soon as his his son shows his face, trouble is likely to erupt. And that someone will surely see his son if his son tries to come home again. So in light of all these things, let's continue with the text. Verse 20, Luke chapter 15, verse 20. So he got up, the younger son got up and came to his father. And while he was still a a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You can't miss how unbelievably happy the father is that his son has finally decided to come home from this distant country. In fact, while his son has been gone, what the father's done is he's kept his eyes on the horizon. He's been, he's been watching for the day when his son would return, knowing that he would need to go out there and meet his son if this was going to go down the way he wanted it to go down. If his son was going to come home alive, he was going to need to be the one to go and find his son when his son was nearing the town. So it says, while the son's a long way off, the father spots him. Father sees him coming. And what does he do? Well, he's got every right to feel really mad, to feel really insulted, and to be holding on to any kind of bitterness you can imagine. But it says that instead of feeling anger, wrath, malice, bitterness, all those things that you would normally feel, instead of feeling those things, he feels compassion. He feels compassion. He feels sorry for his son. Now, did his son deserve compassion? His son hasn't done anything at this point 
to feel compassion. In fact, his son hasn't said a word to him. He feels compassion before his son has a chance to beg to be his servant. He deserves wrath. The son does. But out of compassion, look at what the father does. It says he runs to this long-lost child. He runs to him. Now, in the first century Middle Eastern culture, a wealthy, influential person doesn't run. That's pretty much unheard of because if they need to have somebody run someplace, they can hire somebody. You know, it's not like they're running on paved streets here. There are holes in the road. There are rocks. There are all kinds of stuff that can, that can mess you up. And so if you're a wealthy, influential person, you don't run. You don't do it. Besides, a wealthy person wears long, flowing robes. You can't really run in these long, flowing robes. But in this case, the father lifts up his robe and he exposes his ankles, which for a wealthy, influential person would have been a humiliating act. But the father's willing to do it. He lifts up his robe, exposing his ankles, and he runs through the whole town in front of everyone. He knows he's creating the spectacle. But if he doesn't create a spectacle, then when the sun comes in, he's going to create a spectacle. But these are different kinds of spectacles. One is the father being humiliated. The second is his son probably being beaten very badly or killed. He knows he's making a fool of himself, but the father doesn't care. His child is finally home. Now, let's, let's shift perspective here. We've, we've been looking through the father's perspective. You know, he sees the son. He's running to, to, to meet his son. What about the son's perspective? He knows that he is about to endure the scorn, the wrath of the townspeople. But he also knows that he has to endure all that he deserves, maybe even death. He's going to die in this, in this distant country anyway if he doesn't come home. So he may as well face the possibility of death as he goes through the town to see his father at home. He knows that he has to endure all that he deserves in order to get to his father's house. But he's clenched his jaw, gritted his teeth, and he says, I'm going to do it anyway. And he's prepared to be met with, with jeers, with angry words, with spit, maybe with stones. But instead, he's met by the sight of his father running toward him. And as he, you, know, you might expect uh, your, your dad to be you know, wild-eyed, like, I'm going to kill you before they kill you. But that's not what he sees. Instead of being met with hostility, he's met with this loving humility that defies reason. The next thing that the father does is hug him. He embraces his son and kisses his wayward son. The son had planned on coming home and, and humbling himself, which would have meant, uh, you know, first thing he would have done, he would have taken his father's hand and kissed his hand. The next thing you do uh, in that culture is you lay flat on the ground and you kiss the feet of the father. You kiss the feet of the person that you are humbling yourself before. But you know what? He can't even do it. because He can't bend over because his dad's hugging him. And you can't bend over. All he can do is accept his father's love. All he can do is say, wow, my dad is, is hugging me instead of hurting me. Now, what, is this, what does this picture represent? This picture of the father hugging and kissing his son. Friends, we all know that we've done things in life that 
have offended God. I think deep down, somewhere inside of each one of us, we know that we've offended God and that we've offended him badly. Maybe you stopped going to church some time ago because you wondered if God would ever, ever have you back again. There have been times in life maybe when you've wondered if if he'd take you back, if if you just pleaded with him. If if you were willing to to grieve and and plead your case with him over and over and and really humble yourself, maybe you've been wondering, maybe maybe he'll take me back. Maybe you haven't been actively going to church for years because you haven't known for sure if God would even want you back. I've been there. I've been there. The picture here is of the moment that you decide to approach him. And the moment that you decide to approach him, even from far off, he embraces you. He comes to you as soon as you turn toward him. He comes to you and he embraces you and he welcomes you. It's a powerful image, isn't it? Let's go to the next verse. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now remember, his plan was to say these things, but if you remember, there was something else that he was going to tack on at the end. Do you remember what that was? He was going to, yeah, he was going to ask, can I be your servant? Will you hire me on as a servant? But he's left that out. His plan was to try to earn his father's grace. But rather than earning it, his father met him with grace, right where he was. Before he had a chance to earn it. Before he had a chance to really even plead his case for it. So before the son even has a chance to ask to be his father's servant, to be his father's slave, his father interrupts him. Next verses, verses uh, 22 to 24. But the father said to his slaves, he's interrupting his son here, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. So he interrupts his son. He's heard enough and he interrupts his son. And he instructs his servants in what they're supposed to do. First of all, bring the best robe for my son and put it on him. Now, who owns the best robe in the father's house? The father. It's the father's robe. Only the father would typically wear this robe. But what the father is going to do here is he sees his son wearing these tattered clothes, these filthy clothes He sees his son in disarray, starving, and he's going to cover those tattered clothes with his best robe. His ribs are protruding from starvation, and he's going to cover those up with his robe too. And the townspeople are going to see this, and they're going to know that the son doesn't deserve it. But here's the catch. They'll know that things have been worked out between the father and the son, They'll know that there's been restoration. They'll know that the father has accepted his son back unconditionally. 
So what does the father do next? He, he instructs his servants to put a ring on the finger of his son's hand. Now, this, this ring would have probably been a signet ring, which is what wealthy people used uh, to sign documents. Instead of actually signing their name longhand, a lot of times what they'd do is they, they'd have like kind of a stamp, uh, and they'd, they'd put it into wax. And that would be more or less their signature uh, to seal documents and sign their name. And this represents the full acceptance and empowerment that the son has to act on behalf of the father. Next, the father says, put sandals on my son's feet. See, in in first century culture, Middle Eastern culture, servants don't get shoes. Shoes were kind of a a thing that was reserved for, um, you know, people who owned servants. It It was reserved for people who had money. But that's not what happens here. A servant doesn't get shoes, but the son does. The son gets shoes. The final thing that the father instructs his servants to do is to kill the fattened calf. Now, you might wonder, you know, why, why is he killing this, this fattened calf? I mean, chickens are a little easier to breed, right, Noel? And, uh, you know, sheep, they're easier to breed. Um, rabbits, you know, they're easier to breed. There are all kinds of things that, that would have been easier here. But the father says, kill the fattened calf. Why? Because the fattened calf is special. And the fattened calf has enough meat on it to feed a lot of people. So do you get the significance of this? The father is sharing the joy that he's feeling with everyone. And that's why the calf is being killed. So that everyone can come and partake of this feast. So that the community that has felt so much anger toward this son for so long can come and have a meal with the son. Now this might seem like kind of a, a rags to riches story, but friends, this is not a story about money. This is not a story about some kid who just you know, uh, spends all his money and you know, is spending more than, than he earns. It's not about that, friends. This is a story about a God who loves you more deeply than you have ever, ever in your wildest imagination thought and the eagerness that he has to welcome you back to himself if you've been away. Jesus is using this story to tell us that anyone who has ever felt hesitation about coming to God or about coming back to God, about turning from their own ways and turning to God for his ways, that there's no need to feel hesitation. They have nothing to fear. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. He's telling us that even though we've done things to offend God, God loves us. And he welcomes us back with a grace that is so incredible. We could never, ever do anything to earn it. And when we turn toward him, he welcomes us while we're still far away from him. Because maybe we'll change our minds if he waits for us to completely get to him. No, he sees us coming in the distance and he's going to rush out to welcome us. He embraces us and then he clothes us in his own righteousness to cover the offenses that we've made toward him. Now, as I remember what it was like to come home to my family after a month of being away in Eastern Europe, 
I can't help but think, how much more does God welcome us back when we turn to him in our own lives? Friends, he's just as eager for you to do the same, to turn to him and to find him ready to welcome you back with open arms. Now, I want to be so bold as to ask you to return next week, to come back next week and join us. Next week, we're actually going to be starting a new study. So you can get in like the the first lesson. We're going to be starting a study in the book of Mark next week. That's one of the Gospels. It's going to tell us a lot about Jesus. It's going to tell us a lot about us. And it's going to be something that is, is going to impact your life. I can guarantee it. It's going to speak to you. It's going to find you right where you are. And it's going to work to speak to you. It might also be worth pointing out that people who attend church regularly live an average of seven years longer. That's a good, good excuse to go to church, right? <laughs> that might have something to do with the fact that sociological studies have shown that people who attend church generally tend to feel less stressed out about life than people who don't attend church. But here's the real reason we want to invite you back next week. That is that God wants you here. God wants you to be a part of a community of believers. And he's designed you with a need for that. It's going to be a great service next week, but let me tell you, it's going to be even better if you're here. God's arms are open to you, and so are ours. Let's pray. Father, we know that we have offended you. We know that we have done absolutely nothing to deserve your grace. But we thank you that you are a God who welcomes us back, no matter how great our offense might have been. You welcome us when we turn to you. God, we know that without you, all we deserve is is death. All we deserve is wrath. And so I ask, Lord, that this message would serve to remind people of your amazing love and your incredible forgiveness. Thank you for this message, Lord. Thank you for your word that it speaks to us right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. When we see you, when we see you, Beautiful, your beautiful, your love is 
Worshippers, we are love. Say, worshippers. And-